Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Jobs jumble, solid gains for U.S. hiring in May, but still less than hoped. Biden's ban, the president restricts U.S. investment in 59 Chinese firms. And Tencent taboos, the tiny Czech giant bans banking, fishnets, oh, and politics on WeChat. It's that kind of Friday. Let's make a move. A warm welcome to First Move. Great to be with you this Friday. Let's get quickly to the breaking news before I'm taking off air this hour. It's another disappointing U.S. jobs jolt. Just released numbers show the U.S. economy adding back 559,000 jobs in May. Let's be clear, that is a very solid number. It's double what we got the month before. But once again, it's below expectations. Solid gains in hospitality and leisure jobs. But the retail and construction sectors saw job losses Wage growth, a key for inflation concerns, of course, took a solid jump higher too. Good news for workers, but of course, higher wage expectations could make inflation less than transitory. Let me give you a look at the global stock picture in light of those numbers. And this is the performance. We do see Wall Street set to open higher. Europe in the interim, pretty unchanged. Today's numbers not helping solve the seemingly bizarre disconnect between booming U.S. manufacturing and services growth on the one hand and a jobs market that's been lacking relative vigor on the other, despite companies' desperate need for workers. The U.S. economy is still down some 6 million jobs since the pandemic began, too. So that context is important. It's enough, though, to keep the Federal Reserve and Chair J-PAL active for the foreseeable future. And from patient pal to bad boyfriend Musk, Bitcoin on another bumpy ride after a fresh series of cryptic Musk tweets. The first one showing an unhappy couple and a broken heart next to Bitcoin. The next one, though, showing them making up. Lots of talk in the Twitter universe today of when internet trolling becomes troubling with the CEO of crypto exchange Binance saying tweets that hurt other people's finances are not funny and are downright irresponsible. Remember, Binance benefits from this kind of volatility too. Anyway, for first move, we will stick to analysing economic data rather than the mind of Elon Musk because it would take too long. Matt Egan joins us now with analysis on the jobs numbers, Matt. Don't panic. Just walk us through these numbers. I'm calling them solid. It was hundreds of thousands of jobs added back to the U.S. economy, even if once again it was disappointing relative to expectations. Yeah, Julie, I think solid is a good way to put it. Um, Listen, this is more evidence of a rapid recovery, albeit one that is also a bit choppy and pretty difficult for economists to forecast. Um, To your point, you know, any other month when you had 559,000 jobs added in just one month. That would be amazing news. But of course, economists were uh, forecasting a bit more. Uh, Same thing happened last month. I think there's um, 
a little bit of something for everyone to pick out of this, both the Bulls and the Bears, uh, Republicans and Democrats. I think that uh, on the bright side, strong overall job growth. Also, the unemployment rate is below 6% for the first time since March of 2020. Of course, that was the month that the pandemic uh, first erupted. Um, We also know that wage growth continues to accelerate up 2%. That's a great thing for workers, although um, CEOs and shareholders uh, might not be that thrilled about that. Um, After last month's gains, the United States has now added back about two-thirds of the jobs lost during the pandemic. But, you know, the bad news is that that means the country is still down about seven and a half million jobs relative to before the pandemic. Um, At the current pace, it would take more than a year to make up all of those lost jobs. Um, I think clearly that the jobs market is trying to overcome uh, a number of different challenges, um, everything from the rapid recovery to the fact that some schools are not open yet, child care issue, uh, elder care issues, and those enhanced unemployment benefits. A lot of those issues, though, Julia, will hopefully be going away in the coming weeks and months. And perhaps by September, we'll have a, a better sense for just how strong this jobs market really is. Yeah, I mean, you say it's incredibly tough to predict what's going on in this jobs market. And hey, given the down draft that we saw in jobs last year, the idea that it only takes a year, I think, at this pace to get back, we would have considered great news just six months ago. But to your point as well, there are frictions in this market. And it's still tough to see whether it is about unemployment benefits that are keeping people out of the jobs market. Because when you look at the participation rate, that held relatively steady too. And you'd hope to be bringing people back from the sidelines, particularly given we know there's more than 8 million job vacancies. There are openings as an economy. They're just not finding workers. And that's what businesses are saying. Yeah, I mean, we are hearing that from businesses. I mean, I talked to the CEO of of Honeywell, the world's most valuable industrial company. He said, we're having a really hard time hiring workers right now. Bank of America had put out a report about how factories are, um, they're really struggling. A lot of people are just, they're quitting their jobs right now. So there are problems. We're hearing that from restaurants as well. Um, I think that, you know, when I talk to economists, they do sort of acknowledge that the unemployment benefits, those extra three hundred dollars, that is probably a factor. It's hard to say just how much of a factor it is because there's just so much noise going on right now. I mean, how do you evaluate uh, the role of the enhanced unemployment benefits versus the fact that uh, a lot of schools haven't been open? Um, a lot of the, the women haven't been able to go to work uh, because daycares haven't been open as well. A, a lot of dads, too. So I think that um, it's really hard to really make sense of all that. And of course, that is the job of the Federal Reserve uh, meeting later this month. They have to decide whether or not to telegraph if they think it's time uh, to begin talking about, you know, removing some of this uh, emergency stimulus. And, and that is going to be a tough call after another noisy jobs report, Julia. Patience. That's my guess. We remain patient. Yes, that's a safe that's a safe guess. (laughs) Yes. Safe bet. Thank you very much for your analysis there. Okay, to London now, where G7 finance ministers are discussing a global corporate minimum tax. The United States has proposed a rate of at least 15 percent to help discourage companies from shifting profits abroad. Claire Sebastian joins us now with more. Claire, and the talk behind the scenes is they are going to be able to bring the G7 nations on board. But there's bound to be a few that dig in their heels there. The UK, of course, fresh from Brexit, wants to set their own rules. And Ireland is another one that comes to mind with their lucrative 12.5% tax rate. What are we expecting from this meeting? 
Well, Julia, it's worth pointing out that this this breakthrough that we got from the U.S. when they proposed uh, this global minimum tax and a mechanism whereby uh, the world could tax the, the the biggest multinational companies where they make their sales, not just where they book their profits, that was a huge breakthrough. This has led to, to real momentum in these talks, the likes of which we haven't seen over the past decade that the OECD has been debating this. So we are seeing momentum going into these talks uh, that the finance ministers of, of France, Germany, Italy and Spain wrote a joint letter to the Guardian in which they said, you know, this is a promising start. We are, we are committed to, to defining a common position on a new international tax system. Uh, but as you said, there is some sort of reluctance perhaps from the UK that we've been hearing. Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has said that more work has needed to be done. Today, uh, speaking at this meeting, he said, uh, we can't continue to rely on a tax system that was largely designed in the 1920s. He said, the world has noticed and they have high expectations for what we're going to do over the coming days. So perhaps leaning a little bit more positive there, but still keeping his cards close to his chest. The UK still has one of the lowest corporate tax rates in the G7, around 19%. That is expected to go up uh, in the coming years. But but as you say, they ha- have been you know more keen to set their own uh, agenda on this. But still going into these talks, Julia, very positive noises. And that will all push ahead to the Leaders' Summit of the G20 next week. Yeah, and it's a really important point that timing is everything. You've got a U.S. government that wants to fill the Treasury's coffers in order to try and finance its infrastructure bill or make that at least more attainable. And, of course, the EU that's tackling some of these big tech giants to try and sort out how much tax they're paying or not paying, to be specific. What about the possibility, and to your point of the G20, perhaps even beyond the OECD nations and having parallel discussions there to really tighten the news? Because that then would be potent if tough to achieve. Yeah, but again, we are closer than we've ever been. There are people who are, who are calling this, you know, a real breakthrough in terms of the, the U.S. proposal that, that came in April. We have the G7 Leader Summit next week. Uh, after that, uh, so, you know, some more key dates to look forward to. The OECD is expected to meet at the end of June. Then we have the, the, the G20 finance ministers meeting in July. All of that could, could lead to some sort of high-level agreements, and they could start to sort of flesh out the details there. Uh, and then another big date to look forward to in October, Julia, is the G20 leaders summit in Italy. So that is when we we might expect to see a high level agreement. But of course, after that, the individual countries have to go back and start to update their laws and legislation. So so it could be a while before we start to see this take effect, but significant. And the timing, of course, puts the wind in the sails of these talks. As you suggest, countries all need to sort of beef up their tax revenue bases after COVID to to pay for the recovery and to pay down the debt of what they've already spent on their recovery. Yes, pay up. Claire Sebastian. Thank you so much for that. Let's move on. Olympian Kaori Yamaguchi declares the Tokyo Games have already lost meaning. Quote, the Olympic Committee board member says it's clear public opinion has no impact on the committee's decision to move ahead with the Games as Japan struggles with the fourth COVID wave. Yamaguchi also criticized Japan's slow vaccine rollout. Meanwhile, the president of Tokyo 2020 says it's impossible to postpone the Olympic Games for a second time, given the work that's been done to plan them. CNN's Anna Stewart analyzes the cost of cancellation. After years of preparation, Tokyo 2020 is just weeks away. A year late due to the pandemic, organizers say the event will now cost $15.4 billion. Some estimates suggest it'll cost much more. Cancel the Tokyo Olympic. Opinion polls in Japan suggest a majority of the public want it cancelled. 
Japan has already banned overseas spectators, which the Nomura Research Institute estimates will cost the country over a billion dollars in lost revenue. Cancelling the games, it says, would cost more than $16 billion. But the think tank warns that these costs actually pale in comparison to the economic damage another wave of coronavirus could cause. The IOC says its priority is to hold games that are safe and secure. And while pressure mounts for Japan to cancel the games, contractually, it can't. In practice, the, the single entity that can cancel the games is the IOC, the International Olympic Committee. Because according to the Olympic Charter, the IOC has an exclusive property of the games. So this means that actually Japan can't unilaterally decide to cancel the Olympic Games? If Japan, if the organizing committee, if, the, if Tokyo uh, decides not to go on on their obligations under the whole city contract, uh, of course it would be not possible to undertake the Games. And in that condition, of course, the IOC would be entitled to sue those uh, co-parties in the host city contract. The IOC has insurance for games cancellation and abandonment, which could cover part of its operational cost. But what about its partners, the sponsors and the broadcasters? The main one in terms of money is the TV rights. The different contracts now are so complicated. Uh, 20 years ago, it was very easy to, to answer to your question. Today, it's more or less impossible because the different TV networks uh, bought not only one games, but several. Generally speaking, three online, sometimes four. We have to take each contract one by one and to analyze what is written in the contract. Sometimes it is written uh, something about the cancellation. They have to reimburse, they have not. It's, it depends on the contract and it is a pure contractual agreement bet between two private companies. Billions of dollars, lawsuits and insurance claims are at stake if the games are cancelled. If they go ahead, the IOC risks breaching its own charter, which says it will promote safe sport and protect athletes, who are already beginning to arrive in Japan. The ultimate cost could be borne by those at risk from COVID-19 if Tokyo 2020 becomes a super spreader event. Anna Stewart, CNN, London. Fresh pressure on China. The Biden administration expanding the Trump-era blacklist of Chinese firms, banning Americans from providing investment to those with alleged ties to the country's military and surveillance efforts. John Harwood joins us with more. John, the message seems to be if you thought some of these restrictions would ease under President Biden, you thought wrong. Julia, there are many ways in which President Biden wants to break with uh, the behavior and practices of President Donald Trump. But getting tough on China is not one of those things. You see him adding uh, to the list of firms that uh, are blacklisted from U.S. investors, subsidiaries of uh, aerospace firms related to the Chinese military, uh, to uh, subsidiaries or uh, firms linked to Huawei, um, uh, who, of course, the uh, telecommunications firm that has aroused a tremendous amount of controversy over its potential links to the Chinese government and, and uh, 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 national security problems related to that. So Joe Biden is trying to signal that he's not going to be um, uh, a patsy or soft on China. He's not lifted uh, trade tariffs uh, against the Chinese either. And of course, we saw from the beginning of the administration when the Secretary of State and National Security Advisor met with their counterparts 
uh, in Alaska that they are uh, uh, engaging in tough talk with the Chinese and um, trying to sort out what their policy is for the long term. But in the meantime, uh, they're uh, showing a stern hand. But the mood music in terms of the discussion temperament as opposed to the content does seem to have improved. I couldn't help but look at some of the comments that came out of Beijing on Thursday and they described the trade negotiations or discussions as being normal communication and that the discussions between the Chinese vice premier, between the U.S. Treasury secretary and the U.S. trade representative as, quote, professional, frank and constructive. That does feel different, John. That is different. And of course, uh, President Trump was uh, an impulsive uh, chief executive who would do things um, uh, rapidly, sometimes without a whole lot of uh, advanced warning or uh, uh, preparatory work that was done. So uh, the Joe Biden team is going to be more measured and more considered. Uh, but some of the substance, at least in the near term, is going to be pretty similar. Diplomatic, but tough, I think, is the uh, bottom line there, John. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great weekend. John Harwood there. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Police in Hong Kong blocked public access to Victoria Park today. That's a traditional site of vigils marking the anniversary of the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre. A police spokesperson warned that anyone trying to enter the park without permission could face 12 months in jail. Speaking at an economic forum in St. Petersburg today, Russian President Vladimir Putin said his country's economy and employment figures are close to reaching pre-pandemic levels. He also focused on the environment, saying it's a myth that Russia is unconcerned about climate change. So to come on First Move, it's not every day you put a fintech giant and ASAP Rocky together, but payments company Klarna is welcoming a stylish new addition to its team. We'll speak to Klarna's CEO. And to infinity and beyond, in just days, the firm that plans to 3D print rockets in record time, the Relativity Space CEO joins First Move. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move on another Jobs Friday in America. U.S. stocks set to open higher after a solid but weaker than expected read on U.S. jobs growth for the month of May. The great U.S. jobs machine still trying to kick into higher gear. We did, though, get 559,000 jobs added back last month. Much better, of course, than what we saw in April, almost double. But as you can see, still no real jobs number breakout from the beginning of the year, despite the desperate need for workers in corporate America. The encouraging numbers come as a crucial time for unemployed workers to enhance benefits for the unemployed in some 24 U.S. states run out later this month. Tom Pacelli, the chief U.S. economist at RBC Capital Markets, joins us now. Tom, there was all sorts of jumbling over over what the jobs forecast were. And I look at your expectations. You were absolutely in line. Tell us why you were so accurate at predicting these numbers. Where was the caution coming in? Yeah, so I, I would love to tell you that I'm, I'm good at forecasting payrolls every month, but, but that's just not the case. I mean, it's, it's a tricky number to forecast. There's always a lot mm. of moving parts. Um, and I think the, the, the challenge this month, um, it, which is the same challenge as it was last month. I mean, we think that there's some you know, sort of technical uh, sort of difficulty that the BLS is having with 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 the payroll report, um, uh, you know, like last month as a great example, 266,000 jobs in the context of an economy that's gaining a lot of momentum didn't make a lot of sense. 
Um, and when you look through the underlying job categories, nearly half of the job categories actually uh, shed workers, um, the, the, the top line, the 13 top line job categories. Um, again, didn't make a lot of sense. Fast forward to this month. Um, we now actually have uh, about 40% of the job category shedding workers. You know, uh, retail shed workers, uh, construction lost workers. I mean, that doesn't, again, in the context of the things that we know about those um, segments of, uh, of the economy, uh, you know, it's, it, this report just doesn't, um, it, it doesn't really jive with uh, a lot of the other uh, labor market data that, that we've been getting. So again, just as a sort of a great example, ADP printed nearly a million jobs. Mm. Uh, that was from yesterday. Um, there's a comp consumer confidence toward the labor backdrop. It's actually, you know, it, it back to where it was pre-pandemic. So everything is making a lot of sense with regard to the labor backdrop, except for the payroll report. Um, and so I, I think that this number is a sort of a big fade, actually. There's a few things that confuse me about what we saw this week with the data, yeah. though. We saw a fall in the first time jobless claims. We saw an increase in the number of people actually continuing to get benefits, which seemed jarring. As you said, yeah. we've got certain sectors that perhaps could have supply bottlenecks if we're talking about construction, perhaps that are shedding workers because yeah. the work simply isn't there because they don't have the materials to do it, is, would be my guess. Um, but we've got... Um, a record high level of job openings. So the jobs are available. Like, what is the friction point? Does yeah. it come down to some degree to unemployment benefits or do you sort of push that off too? No, I don't. I, I mean, look, I, I think I think anyone that does push it off is being a little bit disingenuous. Um, yeah. I, I, think that is, I think it is a factor. I mean, the degree to which it is a factor, that's where I think the debate can, can, can sit. But I, I don't think that there's a question that, um, I mean, economically pe uh, thinking, people are being rational. If you're being paid more, um, to, to you know, sort of sit on the sidelines, economically, that actually makes a, a lot of sense. Again, we can have the conversation and the debate about the degree to which that's happening, but I don't think there's any question that it, it is happening. And in fact, the Fed's own um, research sort of bears that out. If you look at the Beige Book um, from just earlier this week, you know, it, it, it was littered with commentary from uh, companies that are saying they're having a hard time to find qualified workers. And it was sort of a great um, example from uh, the St. Louis Fed where they said they had, you know, sort of a, a dozen or two um, restaurant companies that uh, had a job fair uh, and, and, you know, for literally, as if for over 100 jobs that they were trying to hire for. And they said less than a dozen people showed up. Um, so I, I think, you know, and again, as you read through the base book, going through each of the Federal Reserve districts, you, know, you get the you get sort of the similar sense from from all of these other districts. So I, I don't think there's any question that it's a it's a challenge. Um, uh, you know, again, is that why? Uh, you know, we we sort of um, like last month's report. Is that why we missed the mark by a million last month? No, I I, I don't think so. Um, I would be much more sympathetic to hey, you know, we printed a million jobs, but should it have been you know well, 1.4 million jobs? I, I think that it would would have been a more fair argument. But to miss by these sort of large numbers. I, I think that there is something more technical going on, as I said earlier. Or, or maybe we blame overexcited forecasters as well, because it is incredibly tough to, to predict economic data in a pandemic where we have no real basis for, uh, for comparison. Um, to your I, point I, I, agree. I agree with that. But I would say in terms of the overexcitement, I, I, but again, I, I would say, you know, most forecasters, and I, well, I don't want to speak for most forecasters, when, when we think about forecasting, you know, forecasting is literally built up from all of the underlying data that we have in hand. Um, and the underlying data that we have in hand would be suggestive of job prints closer to a million. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it, it's not, these are not, you know, sort of random, they're not as random a guess as, as we all might think. Uh, I mean, there is a construct in place. And, and if you look at the preponderance of labor market data, it does suggest that you should be seeing very big job gains. 
And that's exactly where I was going to go next. Is it coming? Yeah. It's just going to be backloaded because if you, and I love the word, if you take out right. the rational behavior as these unemployment benefits filter off, and as I mentioned in the introduction, we're going to see a lot of yeah. states doing this, um, these job gains surely will kick in. They're just a few months delayed. I, I, I think that there's almost no question about that. Um, I, I, look, I, we're in, uh, again, we're growing in a, we're, the economy is growing at a 10% plus pace as we speak. I mean, that's, you know, sort of a that's cartoonishly high um, growth. I mean, we've, we've never seen anything like that in the modern day age of, of, of the United States. So, um, yeah, I do. I, I think that there, I think that there are bigger job gains waiting for us, but again, it depends how you want to look at it. If, if, if we're going to sort of rely solely on the, the BLS's version of, of, uh, of job growth, you know, it might still be many months off. I think instead what we're going to have to do is um, use all these other uh, metrics that I was highlighting a moment ago to sort of really get a sense for uh, how the backdrop is evolving beyond just the, the, this payroll report. So the New York Fed president, John Williams, caught my attention as well in the last couple of days. He talked about being on a good trajectory, but he said, we're quite a way off from reaching the substantial further progress that we're looking for. And, you know, I look at some of the inflationary pressures and they're the highest they've been since the 1970s. We've got record 8.1 million job openings and we're quite a way off from substantial further progress. Yeah. Is the Fed going to come to a crunch point pretty soon? You know, I think substantial further progress is in the eye of the beholder. I mean, that's an unfortunate reality. And I, this is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm sort of uh, disappointed that the Fed is, is using that, because it just it allows for way too much. Um, uh, um, you, you get to embed your, your own biases into that idea. I mean, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a very analytical construct. Um, uh, you know, substantial further progress. How about this? How about the fact that we actually did have a V-shaped recovery in the United States? If you're just looking, and again, I, just talking about this from the, a numbers perspective, if you mm. just look at it from a GDP perspective, we it was a V. I mean, we're back to where we were pre-pandemic um, from a uh, from a, a GDP perspective. You know, here again, we'll get the the official Q2 number uh, in another couple of months. But I think it's very easy to say here on June 4th um, that you know we're now back above where we were pre-pandemic. Um, you know, uh, spending. Sort of the same idea, you know. We we we've, we're back to where we were. Wages and salaries, which have nothing to do with um, you know sort of fiscal stimulus, you know, it's now north of where we were pre-pandemic. So I, I think we've actually made an, an incredible amount of progress. Um, so again, if the Fed wants to you know sort of continue to use that idea, they can. Um, uh, but uh, you know, I, I think that we just need to define it, um, and I just think we've done a really poor job of that. Yeah, I think the I think economically to get to the position we're in is absolutely phenomenal. But I agree with you too much um, leeway for interpretation in terms of some of yeah. the terminology perhaps being used. Yeah. Tom, exactly. great to have you on the show. Thank you, Tom Pacelli, the chief Thanks. US economist at RBC Capital Markets. Have a great weekend. We're back after this. The market opens next. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. markets are up and running on the last trading day of this holiday shortened week. And we've got a higher open for U.S. stocks, as you can see on news that the U.S. employers added a weaker than expected 559,000 jobs last month. It is still a solid number. Let's be clear. Steady rise in jobs growth could allow the Fed to delay taper talk. And that is good news for stocks. But a jump in wage costs could spell trouble for firms later on down the line, as we were just discussing Meanwhile, the leading Reddit names, 
under a bit of pressure. No, well, they're gaining once again. AMC had a stunning day of volatility yesterday with investors reacting to the company's plans to issue a ton of new stock. Investors are worried about share dilution. They may consider that an AMC a major concern. GameStop rising some 2%. Pre-market, they were lower. This is the fun and games of talking about these stocks. They literally change in a moment. Now, don't shed a tear for AMC. However, its shares still up some 90% so far this week and up 2,300% here to date. Wowzers. It's also not a friendly Friday for Facebook. The social media giant now facing two separate European antitrust investigations into whether the deluge of consumer data that it gathers gives an unfair advantage in online advertising. Facebook says it will cooperate fully with the EU and the UK probes, saying the investigations are, quote, without merit. All right, let me take you to Latin America now, where countries are facing sluggish vaccine rollouts and limited supplies and now surging numbers of infections. Stefano Posibon reports from Bogota on the growing vaccine divide. Tens of thousands of people staged protests across Brazil this weekend, demanding President Jair Bolsonaro's removal over his handling of the coronavirus pandemic. Brazil has recorded the third highest number of cases in the world after the US and India, and is now facing a possible third wave of COVID-19. On Wednesday, Brazil reported its second highest number of new infections in a single day, but the entire region is struggling. The Pan-American Health Organization sounding the alarm as Central America reported last week the highest number of COVID-19 deaths to date, and the doubling of new cases in Belize, El Salvador and Panama. As Europe and the United States relax international travel restrictions, Latin America is bracing for more cases, and there aren't enough vaccines to go around. In Central America, countries like Guatemala and Honduras have only fully vaccinated less than 1% of their population, in sharp contrast with the millions fully vaccinated up north. What is particularly worrying, even with cases numbers rising, is that some restrictions are being lifted prematurely, in some cases to try to help a battered economy. But with more people on the move, experts fear the virus could spread even further. Colombia's capital, Bogota, is set to lift most restrictions next week. It sounds completely contradictory. And frankly, from an epidemiologic point of view, it is completely contradictory to reopen the city when ICUs are at 97% and new cases are growing. But from a social and economic point of view, with unemployment disproportionately affecting youngsters and women, it's the right thing to do. Brazil is now preparing to host a major football tournament, the Copa América which could become another super-spreader event in a country where the situation is far from under control. The only solution, experts say, is to boost vaccinations. The Biden administration on Thursday announcing plans to share at least 80 million COVID-19 vaccine doses globally, making Latin America a priority. Finally, I want to talk a little bit about where we are sharing these first 25 million doses. We're sharing them in a wide range of countries within Latin America and the Caribbean, South and Southeast Asia, and across Africa in coordination with the African Union. This includes prioritizing our neighbors here in our hemisphere, including countries like Guatemala and Colombia, Peru and Ecuador, and many others. But with just 6 million doses allocated so far across more than a dozen different countries in the region, even that effort seems just a drop in the ocean, and the case is only destined to keep piling up. Stefano Pozzebon, CNN, Bogota. Building the 
future of humanity in space. I'm getting excited already. That's the mission statement of Relativity Space, which says it's disrupting 60 years of aerospace by building a factory that can make rockets in days rather than years. How? Well, believe it or not, with a 3D printer. Relativity Space's co-founder and CEO Tim Ellis joins us now. Tim, fantastic to have you on the show. I know relativity is about way more than just rockets, but this is very exciting. Just explain the capabilities that, that you have. Yeah, of course. Well, gl glad to be on and, and share more. So Relativity was founded five years ago to 3D print entire rockets. So not only are we designing and building the world's first fully 3D printed rocket, we've actually had to build the world's largest metal 3D printers. Uh, so these are machines that can print up to 30 feet tall today, over 16 feet wide. Uh, they're really huge. It, it's software defined manufacturing. And that's really what we see 3D printing as. We see it as an automation technology that transforms uh, traditional aerospace factories that have really not changed over the last 60 years with fixed tooling and hands-on labor, building products one at a time with hundreds of thousands to millions of parts. And we're 3D printing our rockets, which really tr transforms that into a totally new tech stack, um, much like electric vehicles underwent with gas internal combustion to electric. I mean, this is astonishing. I'm just mesmerized because we're showing pictures, video of, of the rocket being built here. And as you said, I think 32 foot tall, 16 foot wide. What does a 3D printer like that cost? And then you can talk to me about how it streamlines and reduces the cost of creating a rocket in the first place relative to what we've always had to use in the past. Yeah, of course. So, so the 3D printers themselves actually don't cost very much. There, there's a lot of know-how that goes into it. At Relativity, we've actually had to invent our own custom materials. Uh, so we have a material science team that developed these alloys for 3D printing. We develop our own software. We use machine learning and statistical data correlation to actually make sure we, we can 3D print a rocket and it works. We've done over 500 fully 3D printed rocket engine tests to date as well as actually building our, our first orbital flight rocket this year. So the, the launch vehicles we're building have 100 times fewer parts than a traditional rocket, and we're actually able to build it from raw material coming in the door to fully complete in only 60 days once we're fully operational with, with the factory. Um, so it really is a, a totally different way of building, and I, I was originally inspired. Uh, I came from Blue Origin. My co-founder came from SpaceX. And we actually want to 3D print the, the uh, industrial base of humanity on Mars. That, that's why we founded the company, is we really see 3D printing as an inevitable technology, not just for rockets and aerospace on Earth, but will actually build the future of humanity in space and, and on Mars. Just minor ambitions there. But I mean, are you saying you're yeah. at the point where you can build these then in 60 days, that you have the capabilities now? Because to your point, if you do go to another planet and want to build infrastructure, then you are going to have to do it incredibly quickly. So I guess to your ultimate ambition, you're definitely heading in that direction with this kind of technology. Yeah, that's right. So today for this first rocket, we're at about three or four months um, so we really don't have that far to go to get to 60 days. And a traditional rocket, a lot of people don't know this, but it actually takes on the order of 12 to 18 months traditionally. And, and normally a rocket has hundreds of thousands of individual piece parts all assembled by hand. So, so actually that's where 3D printing is an automation technology. And in relativity, which we've, we've raised uh, more than $700 million to date, uh, we have a team of 400 people making this happen and launch sites at Cape Canaveral, 
at Air Force Base in Florida. We're only the fourth company to ever get a launch site at Cape Canaveral. We also control about a third of NASA's Stennis Space Center exclusively for the next 20 years where we do all of our rocket engine and vehicle testing. And so it's, it's really been a pretty amazing journey over the last five years. And, and we are also the most pre-sold rocket company in history before ever launching a rocket. So not only are we 3D printing rockets, we've really rallied uh, key customers and, and pre-sales ahead of ever launching as well as recruited most of the team that actually built the first wave of private space companies over the last two decades. Um, so we really, across our whole team of 400 people, have actually launched well over 10,000 rockets to date across all of the individuals. So really very experienced team now actually doing things in a completely disruptive new way after having had so much experience landing and launching rockets and docking with the space station over the last two decades. Are you disrupting the disruptors? As you said, you, you came from Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin. You also have SpaceX yep. expertise. Like, how healthy is the competition with your uh, former employers, particularly in areas where you cross and you do compete, which you clearly do? Yeah, well, it's, it's been fantastic. I've, I've remained close with, with Jeff through the years, ever since working for him at Blue Origin. And of course, I think SpaceX's mission of going to Mars and making humanity multiplanetary was one of the original inspirations behind founding Relativity. So I actually think there need to be dozens to hundreds of companies working to make Mars possible in our lifetime. But really, it was for the first 13 years of SpaceX's existence, it was really just them. And so that was the inspiration is seeing them land rockets and dock with the space station, but realizing that they were the only company in the world that wanted to go to Mars and make humanity multiplanetary, even after all of that progress. So I felt 3D printing was inevitably required to actually make that future happen. And Relativity could, could be the company that, that actually does that in our lifetime. And so that was a big part of the inspiration was actually joining them on the mission, um, not just competing against them. Tim, if there are people working in other industries, what do they need to come and work for a company like you or the students at university or thinking about going to university? What do you need to be studying very quickly today in order to come and work for you guys? Not that I'm thinking about it. Maybe I am. Yeah. yeah. What should I be studying? Of course, of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. So, so it's, not, it's not just engineering skills, although that's extremely important. Um, it, it's really finding people that are brilliant and also have high EQ. So we care a lot about... Uh, people that learn really, really quickly, they have drive, they really are mission focused and care about the mission. And I think ultimately ha having that kind of attitude of willing to learn, super curious, really, really smart. Uh, we can actually train you on how to design rockets and, and the 3D printing no one's ever done in the world. So we're already pioneering that in a way that really we, we just need the raw ingredients to be successful. And then we have enough experience on the team that, that you can learn very quickly by joining Relativity literally be prepared to be on the frontier of technology and science, which is awesome. Tim, great to have you with us. Thank you for explaining what you're doing and to come and speak to us soon. Tim Ellis, thank you very much. All right, we're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. It's not enough that Sweden disrupted buying furniture and clothes with IKEA and H&M. Another Scandinavian export has taken aim at how we pay for them. Shopping app Klarna allows users to buy items and pay later in instalments. Now, when we last spoke with the CEO in December, it was already Europe's most valuable fintech worth $10 billion. Now it could be up to three times more. It can count rapper ASAP Rocky as its newest investor. But rumor has it a certain Japanese tech giant could soon push the valuation 
even higher. The CEO of Klarna, Sebastian Szymanskowski, is once again with us. Sebastian, fantastic to have you on the show. Much to talk about, but we have to ask the burning question first. Is SoftBank a new investor in Klarna? Um, well, it's official that they are a, an investor in Klarna, yes. A bigger investor? Will we find out? <laughs> You're not going to be pushed on that. But you are in growth mode and you are open for more investment. Can we, can we ascertain that? Well, yeah. I mean, look, um, I strongly believe that this decade is going to be the disrupting of retail banking. I think it's, you know, we're seeing consumers starting to adopt neobanks. We're starting to see the early signs. It reminds me a lot. You know, I've been doing this for 16 years and I was at the early days of e-commerce. And I remember those early signs when people were still like, nobody's going to buy clothes online. But those early signs, I see the same things happening now in retail banking. So obviously, with that in context, uh, for Klarna, who wants to be one of those global retail banks that, you know, will emerge out of this as the global supplier for these types of services to consumers and wants to be part of disrupting this industry, it would it makes a lot of sense right now to raise money and invest further in, in expansion and, and kind of for this opportunity that is there. Yes. I mean, it makes me laugh when we talk about startups and you're like, yes, we're a virtual overnight success that's been going for 16 years and we've been uh, we've been growing this business for a long time. But I did see in some of your advertising work in, in the UK, and we can talk about that, you described yourself as the fifth largest bank and that raised some eyebrows. Just talk to me about how you're calculating that, because clearly that ties right to your bigger ambitions here, which is disrupting uh, the banking model that is still prevalent in the in Europe and obviously beyond. Sure. I mean, we think that, like, if you look at it, we have about 250,000 merchants worldwide currently that promote the availability of Klarna as, as a way to pay, uh, as a better way to pay than, you know, other options. And and what that allows us to do is to create a kind of a first relationship with a the customer. They try us out, they do it for a single payment online, they like the services. But what we've seen in Europe is that once they, you know, have been trying Klarna out and like the service and they see the value of it, things like they can see, for example, digital receipts, see images of purchases that they bought. You don't see that on a credit card statement. You barely understand what you purchased. So there's a lot of these nice features to it. And then when they start discovering that, we actually um, move them from just being a single payments uh, user to actually being a full bank account user. So we have over half a million plastic card issues. We had salary accounts, bank accounts in our European business uh, that is doing extremely well. So that's kind of like a, a very different. If you think about like how you and I first got our first bank account, we went into the bank, we put a suit on maybe or something looked, tried to look a little bit professional grown-ups. And then we were like, please, 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 can I become a customer? This is different. Like customers try us out, they like it. And then uh, we offer them an ability to use more and more of our services. And so with 90 million users globally, um, that makes us one of the largest banks. Now, obviously, currently not all of these users still use all of our products, but hopefully uh, we want them to do that. and We want them to discover the value that we can bring to them. How quickly is that growing, by the way, where they go from using the buy now, pay later function to actually adopting more of the capabilities that you're, you're providing? I mean, that's growing at a very, very rapid pace. So we've seen that, you know, once people find out they, they like this product, they want to use it. Uh, for example, uh, you know, uh, as an example, we have 34 million app downloads, right, which is a good representation. So 90 million users are using it active, 34 million are actually using the app for all of their online purchases. So uh, that transformation happens quite quickly. Yeah, you had tech issues in, in recent days and you came out and said, look, it was a self-inflicted issue and we're addressing it really quickly. And, and we can talk about that. But, but I, what I'd also like to talk to you about more, perhaps, is some of the cyber attacks that we've seen and whether it's the handling of data or privacy or just being an increasingly large fintech across the world. How do you view 
cyber risks and how do you protect the company from those external threats? Because the bigger you get, the more alluring perhaps locking up the data is and, and charging you for it. Oh, sure. And I think that, look, it's, uh, it's obviously a growing threat and we invest heavily in uh, both in people, in, in competence, in having you know, the right people on board, in the technologies and so forth. But it, it is an issue, right? And I think all, all large companies are you know, challenged by the development of this. And the only thing you can do is uh, you know, try to make sure that you're at uh, one step ahead of, uh, of, uh, of the bad people. Yeah. And I, I very quickly, I want to mention ASAP Rocky, uh, rapper, designer, producer, became a shareholder. And he took over the role as CEO for a day. How was your day off, Sebastian? It was amazing. <laughs> I was. I, mean, I haven't been off for 16 years, so it was quite nice. And, and nobody, there's nobody I can imagine uh, better to take over for a day than that. <laughs> he didn't make any big fun. changes. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, look, I think what was really nice when I spoke to him was also that we really align on one thing, right? And that is that if you look at this credit card industry, it is actually one of the most effective redistribution of wealth that exists in the U.S. It takes $70 out of the pockets of low-income households and puts $700 to loyalty points into the pockets of uh, high net worth individual households. And so, you know, giving an alternative to that and buy now, pay later presents an alternative to that where it's paying for and it's equal for everyone. It doesn't do the same thing. Mm. I think that that was something that he really, you know, connected to and that we saw saw an equal interest in. Resonated with him. Sebastian, great to have you on. Come back soon, please. And we'll we'll take more time. Sebastian, the CEO of Klarna there. Thank you so much. Okay. Let's move on. Not a question we ask every day, but what do fortune telling and placing undergarments on one's head have in common? Well, thankfully, well, thankfully, Paul and Monica is here to answer this one. Paul, also fishnet tights. They're also banned. Talk us, talk us through this story. This is WeChat yeah. making some changes. Exactly, Julia. Those examples you just gave are some of the many things that WeChat owned by Tencent, now is saying you cannot do on their live streaming video platform, cracking down on content that could be considered vulgar, offensive, or low quality in their words, which obviously this uh, program would not violate any of those uh, uh, standards for uh, WeChat. Uh, But uh, it's very fascinating because I think there's a lot of concerns about the quality of user-generated content, not just in China with WeChat, but also on TikTok, Google-owned YouTube. So it's going to be interesting to see whether or not U.S. social media companies enact similar policies or if this is just something that we're seeing in China, which is clearly more restrictive when it comes to managing social media and what users can do. Yes, no spanking, steady on. No nose picking, no wearing underpants on your head, no appearing in a wrapped towel, no wrapping yourself up in a towel and appearing. There is, a, there is an important side to this, though, as funny as that was, and that is there were other things that were being cracked down on, and every social media giant's trying to police content to some degree. But here, discussions of things like politics, where maybe this was a forum for, for discussion of those kind of things, also being cracked down on. Yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting to see what WeChat really cracks down on more aggressively Uh, with regards to this new policy, because it's one thing to say, yeah, you can't pick your nose on camera, because at the end of the day, private companies that want to generate ad revenue realize that low bar is not necessarily going to get you revenue. But if you're going to crack down on political speech, that is not good. Yes. In the interim, Paul, no more fishnet tights. Shame. Paul and Monica.
Thank you so much. I know you're going to suffer with that one. Have a great weekend, Paul. Thank you. That's it for the show. Stay safe. Have a great weekend and connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.